Poland, uh, things that come to mind. Not a whole lot, no. <laughs> Poland, probably not a whole lot. Uh, Polish sausage. No, I don't know anything about that country. Poland, sausage. <laughs> Pierogies. Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. Welcome to Podcast. Welcome to episode 81 of Podcast. This is Margaret Bonikowska, your host and producer. Podcast is produced in Toronto, Canada, and is the only English language podcast not only about Poland, but also about Poles around the world. It also features a variety of stories of people's amazing links with Poland. Today, I present you with an extremely moving story. Of the 3.5 million Polish Jews prior to World War II, 350,000 or fewer survived in Poland after the Holocaust. Most survivors emigrated from post-war Poland already in its first years of existence. Only about 90,000 were left in the country by mid-1947, and fewer than 80,000 by 1951, when the government banned emigration to Israel. An additional 30,000 arrived from the Soviet Union in 1957, but almost 50,000 left Poland in the years 1957 to 1959 under Gomułka and with his government's encouragement. Approximately 25 to 30,000 Jews lived in Poland by 1967. The anti-Jewish campaign began in 1967, but the most traumatic events took place in March 1968, when Warsaw police beat up students protesting state censorship and repression of their fellow students. The student leaders were branded Zionists and anti-Polish as state-controlled anti-Semitic agitation wave began to spread across the country. The Polish Communist Party declared Jews enemies of the state and forced them to leave Poland. This anti-Semitic wave forced about 20,000 Jews from Poland to leave the country between 1968 and 1972, leaving just only between 5 and 10,000 Jews in Poland. Those who were forced to leave were made stateless and were subjected to humiliating exit procedures. Sabina Baral was one of those who had to leave. She left with her parents, leaving her Polish boyfriend behind. And her life, and the country where her family had lived for generations. She ended up in the United States, in California, where she has lived an extremely successful professional and personal life. Sabina Baral wrote a book like no other titled Zapiski z Wygnania, Notes from Exile, in which she describes that March 1968 and the exile of thousands of people with all the details of the process before, during, and after their departure. 
I met Sabina in 2016 when Gazeta and the Polish Jewish Heritage Foundation of Toronto invited her to Toronto to introduce her newly published book. I'm releasing this episode today on April 11th, 2021, on the very same day, April 11th, 2016, exactly five years ago, I hosted an unforgettable evening at the Polish consulate in Toronto, where I interviewed Sabina and discussed her book. This was one of her first meetings with her readers. Since then, the book has proved to be incredibly successful beyond anyone's wildest expectations. I reached Sabina two weeks ago in California. Here is our conversation. Do you know, Sabina, that exactly two weeks, in two weeks there will have been five years since I had an amazing honor and pleasure to interview you at the consulate and to introduce your book and you to the people here. It's not a long time, five years, but it's almost like an eternity in terms of how much has happened since then. Yes, yes, a lot has happened. I, I remember that time very well. That meeting was amazing. There were people sitting in the hallway. We had yes. no chairs left. It, it was a good meeting moment. And it was actually interesting because it was one of your first ones, right? It was less than a year after the book was published. Yes, the book came out in the summer of 2015. The first meeting was, was in Wroclaw. I wanted the first oh, of course. one to be. I would imagine. <laughs> yes, to be in Wroclaw. There was some kind of a festival in Wroclaw. The meeting was in a little coffee shop, which also served as a bookstore on Jewish subjects. I don't think it's there anymore, because when I went back to Wroclaw for another quite different meeting three years later that Olga Tokarczuk was oh, my yes. interlocutor. Um, I couldn't find this little thing and I was looking <laughs> for it. And of course, nobody knew who I was. I didn't know anybody. And and it, it started with like 10 people sitting there. So I was expecting a calm and quiet meeting. And then people were peeking in and walking in, and peeking in, and walking in. Before I knew it, they were bringing out chairs from the rear of the establishment. Afterwards, there was no more chairs in the rear of the establishment, and strange people were sharing the chairs. <laughs> uh, so that was the first one. The second one was in Krakow, because my publisher was in Krakow. And yours was the second one in a consulate before yours was one in the consulate general in Stockholm. And it also was an amazing meeting. It's amazing, right? We're talking five years ago. Let's just go back because I remember that when I was planning that meeting with you, I thought we should first see at least some parts of that wonderful video, which is still available and it must have been seen by thousands and thousands of people, which is going back to 2010, right? Which is yes. a very, yes. very special occasion. I remember that when I actually saw that video, that was before when I was getting information about you, when we invited you to come to, to, to Toronto. I remember I had goosebumps, honestly. Mm, this was one mm. of the most amazing things, your speech there. So talk a little bit about that occasion. This is 45 years after you finished school. And how did you get all these people? Tell us about that meeting. Well, that, that was an extraordinary meeting. 
because it was a class reunion uh, on the 45th anniversary of our high school graduation. It was our first reunion. That's the amazing part. We graduated high school in 65. It was a Jewish school in Wroclaw. There were 36 of us in the graduating class. And three years later, the March events took place. And of the 36, 35 left the country. We scattered to the four winds. We, I mean, somebody had contact with somebody, you know, totally serendipitously um, and organically. I lost my high school class. And I was so jealous when I would go with my husband to Grand Rapids. He was from Grand Rapids. And he would walk me by and say, well, this is the building where I went to school. And this is the building where I went to kindergarten. Then we would get together in the evening He says, oh, some people that I went, that I graduated high school will come, 16 people show up. You know, I I didn't even remember the names of everybody (laughs) in my class. I knew the girls in Copenhagen. Um, I even flew to Copenhagen one year for the wedding of one of my friends. So I knew where they were. Um, But but that was it. And at some point, I decided that not having my class, not having the people who had known me when I was young, um, who had known my, my parental home, and, and not having the people that could tell me, you know, you didn't change at all, or God, have you changed, or you laugh in the same way, or I remember your first boyfriend. Or, you know, none of these things that were me before I left Poland. Since so many, being a Jewish school, so many of us went there from grade one until high school graduation. And I decided to start looking for my class. I managed to put together a little organizing committee. And it wasn't, we didn't even start with the thought of having a reunion. We started with the thought of finding each other. We found that one of our classmates died in Israel as a soldier. Then another one uh, in Australia, there were rumors that he was dead as well, but he wasn't. Um, Long story short, we found 29 people. And with 29 people, we decided to do a reunion. I should, I should actually take credit. I decided to do a reunion. I know. And I think the most amazing thing is that you decided not to have it in a, somewhere in a private home or in a cafe, but you had this amazing idea that where did you want to do it? In the city hall. Yes. I, well, I wrote to the city hall. That, that part it actually seemed so lofty of an idea, but but it turned out perfect. I wrote to the president. I had no idea what was the name of the president of the city. <laughs> and then I wrote actually to somebody, some journalist who had interviewed me along the way. And I said, would you please tell me how to address the president of the city? <laughs> and I wrote to him and I said, we'll be in Wrocław reunion. Uh, 1965, high school graduation. And we would like you to welcome us in City Hall. And he did. And oh, did he ever. 
I mean, the moment when he's actually kneeling and kissing your hand after you finished your speech is, yeah. it is really giving people goosebumps. So Rafał Dutkiewicz, the president, right? And yes. there you had this incredible speech, right? Which was mm. unforgettable, I think, to anybody who has ever heard it, where you said, uh, do you know about these things, right? Right. Actually, beyond the, the quotable, passages, which several, you know, przeczytajcie to swoim dzieciom, please tell your children, please mm-hmm. read this to your children. The thing that to me was the most significant, actually, and, and I'm articulating this to you for the first time, I guess, <laughs> this, is, this is the first time that I ever addressed polls with the topic of how could you have allowed this to happen? This was the first time that I addressed polls. I hadn't known any polls. I had no connection with anyone. And and my relationship with Poland was so ambivalent and so distanced. And this is the first time that I looked at all these city officials, the president, the vice president, directors of museums, God knows who. I, and I said, You've done us a horrible thing. I had no idea what I was expecting, but it could have been that the, the meeting would end very quickly and, and they would say, thank you very much. And now we will proceed to have a glass of wine. No. They were crying. Mogosha, they were all crying. The string quartet was crying. The, everybody was crying. Yeah, I think it was quite an awakening and like a wake up call for a lot of people. But I want to go like jump from there to the moment when you decided that, okay, not only did we meet, not only did we have this amazing opportunity and occasion when for the first time you addressed polls and so on. But from there, at some point, you must have had a moment when you decided, I do want to write that book. Mm. When was that? You know, I don't think I decided that. There was this this fake aunt in Krakow, whom I mentioned in the book, and, and she was a significant influence in this book happening, because she listened to this speech, and she says to me in my subsequent visit in Krakow, and she says, you know, this needs to be told. Nobody knows about this. So I was shocked with this statement. What do you mean nobody knows about this? She was a she was a lawyer. She says they don't teach this. Young people don't know about it. Old people would rather forget about it. It has gone under the rug, and it is so important to be told. And I was I write a book. Nah, I don't need a book. Why a book in Polish? I was afraid I wouldn't know um, how to write in proper Polish. I was disconnected from the language for a long time. Uh, And I was writing scraps of memories because it really, really was an effort. Aside from the pain of trying to remember all this, aside from the pain of actually confronting these memories because they were buried so deeply. The thing that I hear the most from Jewish readers of my book is I cried. I cried because memories kept 
pouring back because I remember the shame. I remember the humiliation. I remember the pain. I remember the fear on the face of my parents. You know, th those are the kind of things. So aside from ripping all this out from inside me, I had no concept that that it's a book. Maybe there would be more speeches on different mm -hmm. occasions or interviews or whatever. I was scribbling memories and tossing them into a drawer. And then the drawer started getting full. And Ruth, the, the aunt, would say, so, so what about this book? Are you doing something about it? And I said, you know what? I actually have a fair amount of material. Let me have a look at it. There was a few months before the book got published. They, I wrote it very fast. And my closest friends with whom I've been traveling and spending time with, and then all they said, okay, so you wrote this book, but when? Um, because they saw me dancing and working and climbing mountains, certainly not writing a book. I want you to go back to the moment when you saw the book published for the very first time. You saw the first copy of that book. What mm. were you thinking then? Did you have like any idea that it will become, well, it is definitely one of the most important books in the last probably decade in Poland now. Did you Thank think you. about the future of this or how did you react when you first had it in your hand, when you started turning your pages? Well, I, you know what? This is also serendipity because I was just reminiscing about this. I have a dear, dear friend, Helena, who lives in Stockholm, and her husband was on assignment in Luxembourg at the time. It was 2015, and they needed somebody with particular experience in Luxembourg. He was a banker, and so they went for a few months to Luxembourg. And she's drumming on my head, like, you gotta come, you gotta come. It's our only chance with Luxembourg. We're here. Come. I said, well, I don't know. There's this book being published. <laughs> so I may need to go to Poland for it. Well, no, come to Luxembourg. We, I flew to Luxembourg. And actually, the publisher, Austeria, sent me the first and one single copy of the book to Luxembourg. So I was in Luxembourg when I first saw the book. And, and it was an unusual moment because I, I opened this package and there was a booklet there, a booklet. I'll say that because, as you know, the book has had so many editions, six yeah. editions, and, and the first one was about half the volume of the sixth one, which, which we're at now. It was, to me, sort of a modest debut. I had no idea what might be with this book, except that the, there was a great deal of satisfaction, actually. I need to say this, that I said this, that there's so many books about March, important books about March before me, you know, journalistic books, analysis and synthesis, and um, Teresa Torajska and Joanna Vishniewicz, and, you know, Books where journalists and wise people tried to analyze what happened, give a global picture of what happened. And 
I just said how it felt. I said what I thought and what I felt. And I thought I was writing the book, well, of course, for myself and to, to commemorate my parents, who were the big losers in this whole picture. And that that my my friends, my brothers and sisters in this exile would read this book and maybe find crumbs of themselves in there. It never even dawned on me that Poles would like and appreciate the book. I, I thought they would get offended. It's it's really hard to do this, but we will fast forward six years. <laughs> 2021. Sixth mm. edition. The book is twice as big as the first one. And I want to know what made you grow it. How mm. and why did you decide to change it? I know it's changed drastically since the first edition was published, but why? It became like a common story that everybody started having contributions to. Why did you do it this way? Let me ask you very briefly, have you seen held this this sixth edition? No, no, I'm in Canada. I haven't. I'm sorry. I am clinging to my first one, which <laughs> is special to me because I am even there on the back page. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but, but it's also very, very special to me because I remember when we were talking about it. I remember when I was reading it. So, oh, I haven't. It's now huge, right? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, but I'll also say you can get an ebook. The ebook is the sixth edition. Mm -hmm. So why? So first of all, there were things I didn't remember. I'm talking about the original writing. Or I remember struggling with and not knowing. Oh, wonderful example is for what we were allowed and not allowed to take out of Poland. There were rules and rules and rules. I don't even know if any of them were written rules, but they were certainly quoted rules. You're not allowed to take this. You're not allowed to take that. I combed the internet, I'm pretty good at this, trying to find any document from the customs service at the time that would describe what Jews or anybody was allowed to take out of Poland. The conclusion that I came to, it's a private conclusion. I obviously have, have only basis of, of hundreds of stories that I have heard since, is that there were no rules that the customs officers made up rules. One, because it was an opportunity to get one more time, humiliate us and make us feel bad. And the other is to squeeze bribes out of us. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that there were rules. If something was rejected from our overall baggage, it was called the lift. If something was rejected from there, um, was it written down anywhere so they knew that I'm not taking this, this book or this piece of glass or this piece of art in my hand luggage? They had nothing. They were just going through looking for whatever they could find that could classify as a reason to get another bride. This is my conclusion all in all. Mm -hmm. but, but let me get back to your question. So there were things that I didn't know and I didn't remember. And I often turned to my brothers and sisters in immigration. And I would say, what do you remember about this or that? And oftentimes I got a flood of responses. But then when I went to the people, I said, would you mind if I quoted this? And people were hesitant because... 
we, we cumulatively, we didn't have any experience of confronting Poles and Poland with our view of what happened in March. And all of us had the same idea that the Poles would get offended, angry, and we would simply spurt another wave of anti-Semitic display. So people were very hesitant. And then, you know, who knew? Was I a writer? You know, what am I going to write? How am I going to write? Even some of the stories didn't occur to me. For example, will you believe me that until I was writing the book, I didn't know that there were Jews left in Poland? I had no idea. I thought we were the last ones. Yeah, I think you you were saying something like we were the last chapter of this rich Jewish history, right? Yes. Well, I still believe we were. So these were the things that you discovered later and then you decided to include them in the next editions? Well, yes, many things that didn't occur to me because they happened to not have been my personal experience. So when you were writing the original book, you based it mostly on your own experience. You did not do any research or you did not contact people and ask specific questions. You did not do that to such an extent um, as you did later, right? Exactly. I did contact people and I did ask specific questions, but it was only to verify Mm -hmm. my own experiences. It wasn't to broaden it. I'll give you an example. I'm working on an English version of the book. I finished translating. We'll talk about that later. Yes, we'll talk about that later. Mm -hmm. In any case, the thing that I am putting in there is a whole collection of stories, which, again, didn't happen to me, so I didn't know about it, about people who, who left without parents, parents who were on the older, sicker end of Holocaust survivors, parents who weren't 40, 50 like my parents, but parents who were 60 and 70, who survived by sheer momentum, who had children late because they decided to rebirth our butchered nation, and they had no strength to immigrate yet one more time. And then another whole group, you know, people who were um, party of officials, not necessarily bad people, but opportunists and people who worked in various ministries and people who were educated. There were so few people who were educated in the 60s uh, with college degrees, with experience and all of that. And so there was a lot of families that divided and the kids left and the parents stayed in Poland. They stayed in Poland because they knew they would get medical care because they were getting some kind of a monthly check that allowed them to survive because this was the only language they knew because they, they had a flat and, and felt comfortable in there and there was running water. So families divide and separate and having separated Of course, the moment comes, hopefully later, but in case of these sad, sick, old people who now are childless again, and they fall very ill. And it's clear that they're dying. And the telegram comes to Sweden, to Denmark, to America, say, massive heart attack, serious cancer. There are days left. 
come immediately. But they can't. They, they could. And people tell me these stories now, 50 years later. Now everybody tells me stories. Now I'm the receptacle of everybody's story. Now I get phone calls and messenger and messages and this story, 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 stories, because they all feel that this has become the, the, our Zapiski, our compendium of what happened to us in, in 68. And people tell me now these stories and they cry. Now they cry. I couldn't go to say goodbye. I have stories of a woman from Sweden who left on the ferry with her husband and two children. They were Swedish citizens. Swedes didn't need a visa to Poland. They didn't let them. The ferry arrived to Świnoujście, and they wouldn't let them off. So this is how your book has grown. It actually has grown because you have included these other voices. Yes, yes, because it has become our compendium. Because in addition to my personal story, which it started as and became a generational story even before it grew, because people embraced it. But then when these stories started coming in about things I didn't think to include because I didn't experience them, I didn't know them. People who stayed in Poland, a guy in Łódź, I'm not going to mention his name because he he really is afraid of that you know we knew each other from summer camps his mother is now 104 years old and she lives on the third floor without an elevator so she can't leave the apartment and he stays there with her father died a long time ago even before 68 she was too old to go she felt too old to go and so he stayed. My mother-in-law stayed. She sent Edward by himself. She stayed. She was 49 years old. She felt too, too old to go. How old was Edward, your husband? 20, 26. So that's how the book has grown. It's amazing. Are you aware of how many copies have been sold? No, I don't know. That, that used to be that some publisher decided we will print, I don't know, 10,000 copies. And that was it. They printed. And when this sold out, then perhaps a miracle happened. It would get renewed. But, but essentially, that was it. Now, printing is so simple. They print mm. um, however many copies they have space for. And then they print more. And then they print more. Whenever they want, they print more. Okay. But each edition is different? Yes. Here we go. So at some point, somebody decides, okay, this is time for edition four. Or whatever, yeah. right? So who makes those decisions? Is it the publisher tells you, Sabina, we are preparing a new edition, give us new material? Or you say, I am ready with new stuff, let's do a new edition. How does this work? Well, edition four was edition for the 50th anniversary of March. I wanted to acknowledge that. And it says so on the cover, special edition. Edition five is when... The, the theater play started. And so, Teras Monodrams, Cristino Yando. And then yeah. six is... It's just out. I've got now notes, Malgoshu, for further editions. There's so many beautiful stories. Some guy from New York calls me up. I don't know the guy, you know, George Seller. Okay. Um, turns out that it was Jurek Vaida and uh, Jurek Vaida from our immigration. 
and George Seller lives in New York. He says, I have probably the only funny story of this whole thing. He tells me a funny story, but he also tells me, and, and people fill in details, like I knew that we had to pay for, for our degrees. To whoever got a degree in Poland had to pay for the degree. I know because Edward's mom had to pay 100,000 zloty for his degree. I know because my friend Helena, the one with Luxembourg, her parents had to pay 40,000 zloty for her degree. Let's just say that because that may not be clear to people. This paying for the degree simply meant that because you were leaving and you got education in Poland, right? You had to pay for the education that the government or the state gave you. Is that what we're talking about? Yes. Education I just want to make sure that people who don't know understand that this is understand not what's going on. You know, on. it's yeah. not like paying for the degree. I am paying you. You give me the degree, right? That's not. No, no you didn't buy the degree. No. Education was free in all, in all countries of the Warsaw Bloc. And there was an unspoken kind of a relationship between the fact that you're going to work in the country and you got this free education. So your work in the country is going to reimburse the country, so to speak, for the cost of your education. But it was it was a citizenry benefit, like medical care was a citizenry benefit. Thank God nobody asked me to, to pay back for all the <laughs> medical care I received as a child. I was a sickly child. but. Nobody was hiring Jews. So you, you get a degree and then you're leaving and they say, well, you have pay to us pay back. Us. <laughs> right. Arbitrary, huge sums for different, different sums for different faculties. You know, really punitive stuff because to get together such sums of money, there's some people, my mother-in-law, who who did very well. She was a doctor herself. She was the chief physician in a hospital in the city where she worked. You know, she had to pay 100,000 zloty. That was a big deal. And nobody, you know, how could you even work if they didn't hire anybody? Somebody told me a cute story that there was some girl who asked for a job. And she says, give me part-time. Only one of my parents is Jewish. Something happened, and that something that happened changed things even more, right? Because, I mean, not only is the book growing, but there's this moment, which I very well remember when I learned that there is the idea of a theatrical production, of a play based on your book. And that actually, I think, was quite a breakthrough, wasn't it, as well? Yeah, I think it would be a breakthrough if if there was just a production, if a if a theater in some Pipidovka decided to 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 yeah, perform this. But this big big deal. How did this happen? And of course, you had to say yes. But when you got that offer or idea, how did you react? It was in writing. I received this in writing. You know, I I met. Christina Yanda, because we had one of one of the authors' meetings. We had the the guy who was leading it, Remek uh, Zela, had this idea that we need to get a known actress to read passages from the book. You know, people have done various things. There were musical performances. There were all sorts of things. It's really, I mean, I, I had been so privileged. Some of these, some of these meetings were like, I was impressed. But this one, I didn't know any actresses in Poland. I, I'd never been to a theater in Poland by then. But you knew who Yanda was. 
I knew who Yanda was because she was the favorite of Andrzej Vaida. So much so that there was a play when her husband um, was very sick and she didn't perform at all for a year. Andrzej was telling me that. They had a conversation and she says, look, if I get five years with him in bed, I won't work for five years. If I get a year, I'll get a year. He said, I'll wait. He told me this story. Uh, this was for Tatarak. Yeah, the film amazing, an amazing piece, yeah. An amazing piece, and he really, he, he couldn't imagine anybody else playing this. And the Vaidas, both Krisha and Anjay, were close friends of our Chocha and Krak. So I knew these people. So I had, I don't know, tea and coffee and long conversations on the same sofa with them. Plus, Yanda was Yanda. I knew Yanda from, from Anjay's films. So he says, I, I'm going to write to Yanda. I said, Yanda? He says, what can we lose? So I'm going to send her passages from the book. He was, he is a great believer in the book. And he says, I'll send her some passages and, and let's ask her. She said, yes. And so it was an extraordinary meeting and Krisha is reading these passages and the room is so full that it was on the ground floor and outside there were some French doors that led to the outside. It was like with yours in Toronto. People stood outside <laughs> pushing each other. It was just an amazing meeting. And then Krisha had to go because she had some other commitment. So she didn't even stay until the end. And But I met her on this occasion. We actually spent, I don't know, 10 minutes together, which wasn't really intimate in any way because she already read the passages, only the passages. And, and she knew what she was going to read. And then immediately afterwards, her and Magda Umer and Zuza Wapitska were leaving for an Italian vacation. So we said goodbye to each other. She left. This was my moment of glory with Christina Yanda. And like 10 days later, I get an email. And actually, even before I got the email, she published something in her blog. I didn't even know that she writes a blog. But somebody, one of my readers says, you know, she's, she wrote in a blog that she read Zapiski's Vignania, Na Moje Szczęście, Nieszczęście, For My Good and Bad Fortune. Um, I read this, now I can't sleep. I can't, I keep turning over. I see faces, I this and that. She was incredibly, incredibly complimentary of the book itself and the experience of, of going through the book. And then, she, then I get this email. And she's so straightforward and simple in there. She says, we would like to make a monogram. I want to star in this. If you say yes, this, we would like this to be our thing for the 50th anniversary. And I read it and I sort of, uh, uh, you know, this kind of like, can I catch a breath? I said, this is a big deal. And that's it. I said, yes, of course. And Magda kept calling me. My, then my relation, huge relationship with Magda Umer started because Magda was responsible for the adaptation. She waited until midnight in Poland, so for sure I would be available. There was one incredibly important thing that sort of stopped me dead when Magda presented it. She says, you know, Krisha wants to sing. And <laughs> I paused. And I'm thinking to myself, that, that woman is going to make a cabaret of my book. And I actually said it to Magda. I said, it's not going to be a cabaret, is it? And they had been 
incredibly respectful and incredibly thoughtful about following the clues in my book. If I mentioned Pavikoska Jasnozeska as having been one of my beloved poets, then they, they included that. I mentioned Tuvim Polsi, they wanted to include that. And the thought that Magda introduced was that they took away my diary at the border, as you know. They took away, they took away the plan of Wrocław because it was a government document. They broke my shoes. They really were torturing us there. And if they could, they would take away, well, the coat and sweater I was wearing just to humiliate me. She says, the one thing they couldn't take away from you is the Polish culture that you had inside of you. You carried with you the culture of Polish Jews. And uniquely so, I mean, Magda probably knew it because they had a lot of Jewish acquaintances before 68. But an assimilated family in Warsaw wouldn't have any idea of what Polish Jewish culture is because they were trying to be more Polish than the Poles. But I went to a Jewish school for 11 years. I speak Yiddish. I was steeped in Jewish tradition, and very Polish. And she says, you carry inside of you the Polish-Jewish culture. And they, they didn't know it, and they couldn't take it away. So Krzysztof had Janusz Bogatski, the, the phenomenal music director, the songs and melodies of Polish Jews. And Krzysztof sings, but there isn't a single song that she sings in total. She sings pieces. She stops half word. All of this is as if the nation died or she didn't have the strength to continue. She just wanted it to be remembered. Yeah. So in a way, it's almost symbolic, right? That it was never, never ending. She never ended her, her songs, right? It's like your, your life, which has also stopped at some point and was kind of ripped, yeah. torn. Everything oh. is torn. Everything, is, Everything torn. is torn. So this is how it all started. It, the, the play is incredibly popular. The play has been seen, I mean, by record audiences. It has had incredible um, reviews. It's just people write about it, talk about it, but they want to go and see it again. This is the most touching experience. And a lot of polls have seen it. How many times have you seen it? Four. Four. Is each time different? Well, I want to say yes, because the, the first time I wasn't really watching the play. I was waiting for the next sentence. I was very overcome by the fact. I mean, the first time I saw it was not the premiere, but the premiere for, for media. So it it wasn't even a whole play. It was, there were, I don't know, a room full, 100, 100 journalists of all varieties and photographers and everything. And, and she was playing snippets that were interesting to write about. The second time was the premiere. The room was full of dignitaries. Everybody was somebody. I didn't know all these somebodies, but every once in a while somebody would look there, this is the director of this. And this is, mm -hmm. you know, 
just really luminaries of all varieties. And you know what happened, and people talk about it. When the play was over, there was silence. Malgoshu, silence. If I said for 20, 30 seconds, which is very long, complete silence. People were unable to move from their chairs. And then, of course, thunderous applause and, and, and the, the premiere and, you know, flowers and everything. And Krisha stopped everything and says, <laughs> The third time I saw it, all my friends from Stockholm flew in. It was already during the, the celebration of the 50th anniversary. The room was full of people from Israel, from the U.S. That was different because the audience was so different. And, and everybody was crying. Actually, one of my friends from Stockholm, who is an actress, she works in Poland. Her name is Małgorzata Pieczyńska. And, and she's, I guess she's a well-known actress. Very well-known actress. And a very okay, actress. She's, she's a very close friend. And so at the end of the, the spectacle, we went to the bathroom together. And we go with Jean, red nose, red face, red everything. She says, you know, there's already a first review of the play. And she opens her bag. And in the bag, there is, I don't know, a hundred scrunched over Kleenexes all wet with tears. She says, here's your review. And it's been going on and on and on and on, right? I don't know how many awards. Do you keep track of all this? I do keep track of this. Yes. It is in, in the sixth edition. I have a list. There's 14 awards, national and international. Best play of a festival, best play of the year, best actress, um, da, 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 da. Uh, even an award from... Jewish combatants of World War II, these elderly, elderly guys, one in a wheelchair, came out onto the stage and awarded. Very moving. So 14 awards, 112 performances so far. Krisha mm -hmm. says Benjamin Zafshagrach. Which means we will always play. We will always play. Keep playing. I know it's impossible to get tickets. <laughs> Very hard. To get. Booked in advance. So this is like another life of your book. But there is also something else that I wanted to ask you before we get to the translation. I don't know how long this interview is going to be, but it's called <laughs> So I remember we, we once talked about it and you said, oh, my God, it would be so amazing if teachers got interested, schools got interested in the book. And here it comes, of course, the news that the book will, in fact, find its way to the Polish schools. <laughs> yes. Yes, the book, not the book, the fragments from the yes. book are part of an anthology of Polish literature. Polish literature. Olga uh, Tokarczuk says to me, the newspapers are calling you uh, a Polish writer, how do you feel about this? <laughs> so yes, there are fragments in the book, Gdańskie Wydawnictwo Oświatowe, the Gdańsk Educational Publisher. Mm -hmm. For high school, there's obviously many different authors there. I'm somewhere between Leszman and Krasinski. I think that's a beautiful company. <laughs> so. Yes, the, apparently I have a book 
uh, they, they mailed me a book. It's, it's beautifully published, beautifully edited, beautifully presented. It's really a beautiful book. And if I was a student, I would pleasurize in, in doing business with a book like this. It's really pleasant. Things they chose, the fragments they chose there were my Roman lessons. I have as part of a book six discoveries that I call lessons um, that I learned in Rome while on a journey from Poland to my final destination in the U.S. And they published these these, um, Roman lessons. I'm telling you, I I got not too long ago, I don't know, five days ago, six days ago, an email from a woman who teaches a Polish school to young children in Seattle. This is the the woman who asked me to connect you with her. Ah, there you go. Anna Holevinska. Actually, she she interestingly enough, she emailed me yesterday and said something about you again. She said, Oh, thank you again for for making it possible for me to contact Sabina. And I said, you won't believe it, but I'm interviewing Sabina tomorrow. She said, oh, (laughs) my God, (laughs) thank Uh her. She said this was an unforgettable thing for her. Well, she wrote me. So what I received from her these few days ago were um, students' essays on the subject of Zapiski, how it made them feel, what they understood from it, reflections, and amazing work. Um, Her students are a variety of different ages. The oldest one was 12. Some are seven or eight. That's incredible. I know. And they are writing about Zapiski. I get emails from professors at Warsaw University, at Jagiellonian University, um, you know, where they, they do pieces of it. Krisha Vaida, this is somebody that, that I know. So she still teaches occasionally at the drama school in at the Jagiellonian. And they put on Zapiski. Mm-hmm. Krisha directed it. So, yeah, it is definitely hitting the young people. I have readers. This is so memorable to me. Some guy, Patrick Gurne, from the town of Kruszwica, who wrote to me, Pani Sabino, młodzi chcą znać prawdę. The young people want to know the truth. A girl called Misha Jędrzejewska from Gdańsk, who went to the performance in Warsaw with her parents, and then came away absolutely a changed person. And lo and behold, a few months later, there is a performance in Gdańsk. She somehow managed to get the whole class to go and managed to get the teacher of the Polish language and the teacher of history to go with them and then put on a whole curriculum based on Zapiski. It is finding its readers among young people and each one of them is a gift to the nation. So now look, remember when you said in your speech 11 years ago, right, in 2010, when you said, tell this to your children. Well, you don't have to tell this to your children because you've already done it and they're going to be telling others. They are. Not too long ago, a woman painted a painting for me for my birthday. It's a painting of me on the Polish train. She's a very well-recognized painter. She's in Amsterdam. I'm so moved that... The window curtains have PKP on it, Polskie Koleje Państwowe, Polish National Railways. 
it's clearly a Polish train and there is my suitcase with stuffed mumbo jumbo sticking out of it and I'm holding a doll of some kind. There's the famous lighter sitting on the counter. And But in any case, there's many comments beyond that. And, and she says, you all must read this book. And the various comments, yeah, we read, we read, we read, we read. But so often it says, I read. My daughter read, my mother read. My neighbor read. We read as a family. So now the time has come, and I know that you're translating it, or you finished transla- translating it yourself, because obviously it has to be published in English. And I know that you had that plan, and you finally did it, right? Yes, yes. I have the product almost. I'm still, I'm still diddling with it, but yes, I have the product, and I'll be looking for a publisher. Right. Which is, you know, which is why I'm hesitant to say I did it. But but the product is there. And and let's say if I can't find the publisher because of COVID, because only 5% of books published in North America are translations, because nobody knows here who Christina Yanda is, because nobody knows for sure who, what March 68 is. And because... Maybe that's important to say also. Poland is not, the picture of Poland is not a pleasant picture these days. He must have had to change the story quite a lot. Yes, not the story itself, maybe. I mean, I did see the English, I must say. (laughs) So I know there are lots of footnotes, but that's what you did, right? You provided a lot of footnotes. Yes, and I had to, one of the things I'm doing now is I'm incorporating the footnotes, some of the footnotes back into the text. Uh, So it doesn't come off as a history lesson. But nevertheless, it is so incredibly important to give this English language potential reader a context for things that are so obvious to us from Poland, historical data. Who knows that Breslau and Wrocław was the same city? Who knows that it changed the population 100% at the end of World War II? And what an incredible place to be born into that was. Who knows uh, the fact that our professors were from Lvov has a particular connotation, uh, not only historical, but ideological. So, So many, many different things that are obvious to us that are not obvious to an American Canadian reader. So I, yes, it has a lot of footnotes. And and I also changed the dedication. Yes, I dedicated the Polish version to my parents. I'm dedicating the English version to my children. Yeah. Well, Sabina. Yes. What has this journey meant to you? Oh, you know that a pivotal moment came a few years ago when the book started getting such strong reviews as a screenplay for this monogram, so many theatrical reviewers have been writing about it. Olga Tokarczuk says, outstanding literature. And then everybody asking me, so what are you writing now? I I really had to ask myself a question. Have I become a writer? Do I want to write? Now that this has gone so over my head well, do I feel obliged to follow this bliss and write another book? That was a big question to myself I had to ask. Do you have an answer? Yeah. I, I am not a writer. I simply had something to say. And for the occasion of saying it, 
I became a writer. And it is said now. I, I can't imagine that I could possibly have anything more or equally as important to say as what I said in Zapiski's, in Notes from Exile. So I'm not going to write another book, but maybe. And the, the maybe is something else, but has to do with Notes from Exile as a, as a continuation. But no, I don't want to be a writer. I changed professions so many times in my life. I was one of the privileged ones that felt at liberty to do that. And, you know, my education in electronics and then this marble company and then this design company and all these things, which I'm sitting here and looking on the wall ahead across the room from me. There is a framed cover of Zapiski. And there is a framed thank you letter from Giorgio Armani for designing their look and their stores. What a journey. What a journey. And no, I don't want to write on other things. I don't want to honor another topic. If it means that I have discovered in myself a writing talent, I want to devote all of it to this topic and to the victims of this town. So that's one thing. And then another thing in my constantly evolving relationship with Poland, that the people that I now know, you know, Kristina Yanda is now Krisha. We're friends. We write to each other. We, we have contact. Magda is Magda. Olga is Olga. You know, the people that I met, the privilege that I got to learn so much about Poland that I actually understand it now so much better than I ever had. And that's my question for you, because I do remember very, very clearly when we spoke about identity, we spoke about your attitude towards Poland. And I just want to know how that has changed, how your feelings about Poland have changed. Have they changed? And if so, how? Or Poles? That's two different things. Well, it is two different things because, you know, this is an unfortunate moment in history to, to be talking about Poland in sympathetic terms. Poles are not finding the language to do that with. Has my relationship changed? Would I ever live in Poland again? Absolutely not. Would I apply for a Polish passport? Somebody asked me at an interview a couple of weeks ago, why don't I apply for a Polish passport now? They would be given to me instantly. The logical answer is, first of all, I don't need it for anything. I already have an EU passport because I'm a Swedish citizen. I, I have an American passport. I'm a U.S. citizen. My husband is a Canadian citizen. You know, Polish passport is not something that would fulfill any need. But more importantly, I would never accept it on the terms that, on which it is offered. If Poland approached me and said, would I consider receiving a Polish passport, I would give it a thought. But to apply for it, to explain who I am, to find people who had known me when I was 20 years old and was leaving Poland, to produce documents, I would find it belittling and, and no. So none of that has changed. But there are things that have changed. 
I have tens of thousands of readers in Poland. I'm going to be as presumptuous as saying that my book has changed the way many people think. My appeal to audiences at the end of each author's meeting is buy a book and give it to an anti-Semite. <laughs> because maybe you're going to find a way to this mind. And, and people do that. <laughs> Sometimes they come and ask me to sign sign books, and this one for me, and this one for uh, please write for for Vuajo. Who is Vuajo? My grandson. You know things like that. Um, and this one, please just sign. Who is that for? For an anti-Semite. <laughs> so I, I think that the book has done a lot of good. And it has done a lot of good to me also because I have stopped putting Poland, Poles, into one bag. Poles are as divided today, perhaps, as Americans are divided. I have many friends in Poland now. I go and I may have an author's meeting in Lublin and people come from Białystok and then Stalowa Wola and who knows from where. And and then they don't want to go home and we just sit there forever and talk. So to me, there is no such thing as poles now. And I think that that's a big deal. That's a lesson for me. Maybe a lesson for, for so many of my immigration brothers and sisters that it's a horrible way of saying it, but maybe the good poles made a mistake by not paying attention to the harm that was being done to us. Do you sometimes think how your parents would react to all this? I will say honestly that nobody's ever asked me that question. Yeah. The book is dedicated to your parents. I thought about your parents a lot. I mean, your parents are very important part of your history yes. you are yes you are an example of a success of everything went fantastic your life has been so rich so successful your parents were not that happy or could not find their way around the new reality of the united states yeah. as probably many other parents of these children or young people who left with you on the same trains And I often thought about them. So I'm, I'm kind of thinking, you know, if they look down and wherever they are, they're probably very proud of you. You know, they were proud of me before I wrote the book. They were proud of me because I was alive and I laughed. Magda Czapinska said to me the other day that I have a talent for being happy, which is a beautiful thing to hear. My parents were proud of me and would have been proud of me regardless of this book. Poland was not a fond memory for my parents. They were so incredibly disappointed and harmed. They were, as I mentioned before, the true victims, all of our parents, no matter where they went, were the true victims of, of March. But I think they would be happy that I did it because I have to confess to you that I don't think I have processed March as completely before. I processed it by putting it on a shelf and saying it happened. 
things happen to people. They get diseases. They lose loved ones. They lose a country, country that their fatherland doesn't want them anymore. And you can process it and live through it for the rest of your life. Or you can put it on the shelf and say, this is a package. I'll look at it every once in a while without opening. Which is what you did. Which is what I did until Zapiski. And Zapiski, I forced myself to open this package and to rub my face in it. And as painful as it was, I'm no longer afraid. It's no longer a package. It's a bunch of articulated, understood pieces of my life. And there are people who are responsible. And there are people who cry with me. I've dealt with it. It's not even that I can deal with it. I've dealt with it. And more importantly, perhaps, I have helped other people deal with it. That's exactly how I see that. Quite frankly, when I think about it, I think that one of the most amazing things that have happened, that's why I fully understand that you don't want to write another book, that you just want to continue or work on doing what you're doing. Maybe, I don't know, maybe take it further, but still do this because you've created, I don't know, it's like a movement almost. Like you made people go through things in their minds, in their hearts, emotionally, uh, intellectually. I mean, it's not just getting the knowledge, right? It's not just knowing what happened, but it's understanding, getting the gut feeling about what happened. And and you gathered people around you, around this story, which I find is probably one of the most amazing achievements. It's incredible. Thank you. And, you know, I get these notes from people and you know some guy from australia who says i cried because there's no way to turn back history i could, i ask sometimes people you know when i when i have a really good conversation with them i say so why did you cry you tell me you cried why did you cry what are you crying for and this guy from australia says i cried for myself because i was too little then too small then I get a letter from a guy from Cheshire who says, I saw what was happening. It didn't interest me. And now they process all this. It's not a question about Jews. Poland is so tough for different people. It's tough for homosexuals. It's yeah. tough for redheads. It's tough for people who have hunchbacks. It's tough for limping people. It's, it's just tough for different people. And I think that you can't group people by how they were born, by who they were born. That's not good enough of the glue to group people together. To get more information about Sabina Barrel and her book, please go to the podcast website, mypolcast.com. This is the end of episode 81, produced and hosted by Margaret Bonikowska in Toronto, Canada. On Polcast, you can hear many interviews and read related stories on Polish-Jewish issues. You can find them all on our podcast website at www.mypolcast.com/tag/jewish. 
Thank you for all your emails and phone calls, your comments and ideas. I'm happy that Polcast is reaching people in so many places in the world. Please visit Polcast's website, mypolcast.com, where you can listen to the previous episodes and read stories related to all of the interviews featured on Polcast. If you like what you heard, share it and tell others. If you want to help me make podcast, please donate to our podcast fundraising campaign, mypodcast.com slash support. Every penny counts and will be most helpful in paying for servers, equipment, etc. Thank you to all our existing patrons. Your help is greatly appreciated. I do encourage you to go to Polcast Facebook page. For quite a while, I have been posting articles about Poland in foreign press, in English, American newspapers, British, Canadian, but also some that are published in other countries, sometimes also from Poland, but all in English. So I'm sure that could be of great interest. Be well, and please look after yourselves and others. And I leave you with a song, Ciemna Dziśnoc, recorded in December 1965, sung by Polish-Jewish pre-war singing star and celebrated singer of the Warsaw Ghetto, Vera Gram. I znów za depeszą, depeszą Przez mrok wiatr po drutach przesywa Wiem, że tę noc Znowu spędzisz do świtu bez snu Przy łóżeczku dziecinnym I znów w oczach łzy Moja miła Jakżebym chciał, gdy tak płaczesz, scałować te łzy. Jakżebym chciał właśnie teraz przytulić czule. Ciemna dziś noc step rozdzielił nas czarny i zły. I dlatego nie słyszysz mych słów. Gdy wiatr świszcze i kule Jeżeli wiem, żeś ty moja I ja jestem twój I ta wiara serdeczna nieraz Była tarczą od kuli Mogą mi tak, choć śmiertelny rozpętał się bój Śmiechem już myślę o dniu, gdy mnie znowu przytulisz. Co mi tam śmierć, 
Choć na stepie złowiaszcza jej moc Nad głową mą Tak jak teraz Zakrąży strożej Czekasz mnie, wiem Przy łóżeczku dziecinnym w tę noc I dlatego wiem dobrze, że nic Nic mi stać się nie może Nic mu stać się nie może